will. Romans 8, we're going to continue looking here. Uh, I, you know, know we're coming into our summer months and uh, our summertime, but uh, we're going to continue trekking through Romans 8. Uh, we're going to finish up the Spirit-filled life uh, this morning, uh, second hour, and then uh, probably uh, keep kind of going in with uh, Ephesians 6 there. We'll see uh, how the Spirit moves me and uh, what we're going to do. But uh, Romans 8, here we're in verse 17. Let's just start reading there. Uh, actually, let's start reading in verse 15. For ye have not received the spirit of, a, of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So we last time we, we came down through and we were, we were looking at that issue of the if so be that. Uh, and, and that issue there where um, when you see Paul use an if, it's not he's... He, Honestly, and all of what I've looked at and studied it out, he's never implying a doubt or a concern. It's rather, if so be, are, are we heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ? Yes, we are. So then let's think this through logically. Let's think this through logically. Uh, so when Paul uses the if so be that, he uses that phrase five times. And we looked at them last time. And each of those times, he, it's designed for, to, to produce a logical argument, to get the reader to come to a logical conclusion by making a logical connection. Come, or, um, uh, a logical conclusion, I'm sorry. And that conclusion is not a whether it could be or whether it's not, doubt, but rather it is the same conclusion that the Father has come to as well. And that's really what's so critical here in verse 17. And, and because he's going to link two different issues together. And that issue of heir and joint heir, the issue of an inheritance, with the issue of verse 18, the present time, the suffering of this present time. There's, he's now going to link these two together. And, and again, we need, uh, I, you know, this is part two to 817. <laughs> we, to go through this, it's critical because of what Paul is going to be moving into now in verse 17, and that's that issue of we will suffer. And that there's no doubt about that. We're going to suffer the end of verse 17 if, if so be that we suffer with him that we may be also glorified together. And again, that gets back to what we were talking about last time, down in verse 23. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. What are we waiting for? We're waiting for him to change this vile body, Philippians 2, and, and change it into that glorious body. We're waiting for something. We don't have the glory now. Right now we're in the present, the suffering of this present time. But we're waiting for a future event. 
And, and that's critical because, it, it, and it starts here in verse 17, to understand what Paul's driving at here. Paul says, if children, then heirs of God. And again, we looked at this, Titus 3, an heir of God, eternal life, that's what he's talking about. But then this joint heirs with Christ, that this jointness, we share in common uh, something with the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we share in common with him. And, and, and again, what are we going to share in common with him? Well, an inheritance, glory, that future day, but then also right now as we wait, we're going to suffer, notice it says, with him. We, Paul jumps from join heirs to suffering in the present time. And it's like, okay, Paul, what are you doing? Why? And that, again, that's what the if so be is. Let's think this through. Why are you making this move from, why didn't you just say you're going to be joint heirs and since we suffer, we're going to be glorified with him? He doesn't say since. By the way, the new Bibles change the if so be to since. And they take away the argument they take away the, the design to push the reader to think this down through, think the conclusion down through. So Paul is going to say here, look, we have glory coming. We just don't have it right now. Today is not the day of glorification. That's coming. That's in the future. Rather, today is an issue of what? Suffering. And what this does is it begins to deal with the issue here that we all groan, don't we? We all want, let's be done, let's go home, let's be with the Lord, get the new bodies, get going. And, and I, one guy called it the Christian suicide. And you know that Paul never says that? Paul said, the closest Paul gets to it is here in verse 23 where we groan within ourselves. But what are we doing? We're waiting for, that patiently waiting for that day. The, we call it the rapture, the gathering together, the future. And what we learn here is that God's not going to protect us. He's not going to come up and put a hedge about us. He's not going to come up and have miraculous dealings with you and I. Rather, we're going to suffer, we're going to, we are going to share in common with the Lord Jesus Christ, not only in the future event, glory, but also now in this issue of suffering. And that's really what is critical here. Because as we begin to look at this and as we begin to introduce and talk about the issue of suffering, while we're waiting for the future, well, what's the future? Verse 19. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. What are we waiting for? Well, we're waiting to be manifested as what? The sons of God. We're waiting for that future event to come out so that we're gathered back together. We go through, we're presented to the Father, we're set up in the heavenly places. That's a manifestation. We're waiting for that. Verse 20, for the creature was made... Uh, subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him which subjected the same. Notice those last two words, in hope. Notice that 
we have to we're, we we share in common with the Lord the future, but we also share in common with the Lord in this issue about being waited for deliverance. This hope, because that's exactly what the Lord has to do. There's a hope, verse twenty. Verse 21, because the creature itself also shall be, what? Delivered from the bondage of corruption and the glorious liberty of the children of God. There's a deliverance. Jesus Christ had a hope. In the earthly ministry of Christ, he had a hope. The hope was what? Resurrection. Also in the earthly ministry of Christ, we looked at it. The Lord is praying in the garden Is there a way to get this cup to pass by, right? What's he looking for? Deliverance. But then he he goes immediately into, not my will, but thy will be done. But what's he looking for? He's looking for deliverance. You and I are the same way. See? So while it's glorious to share in his glory, and we think about that, we set our affections there, We also have a responsibility now, here, to have a fellowship with him in this arena of suffering. And when Paul says there in verse 17, if so be that we suffer with him, that's the issue now the rest of the chapter. And the idea here about suffering with him, notice it's not for him, Notice it's not by him. You want to shut that door? Because I can even hear him talking. Okay, thank you. See, it's not an issue of... It's, it, it, that's the, the issue now is going to be a suffering with him. The idea is to suffer with someone. That's the focus here now of Paul. When you suffer with someone... There is a likeness, there's an equality to it, there's an identity in it. Okay, Linda broke her arm. I can commiserate with her, I can go through it with her, I can help her with her, but I can never do what? Completely suffer with her, because guess what? I've never broken my arm before, right? Now, if I had broken my arm, Emily can suffer with her. Emily's broken her arm. Emily knows exactly what she's going through, right? Well, that's the suffering with him. Because the Lord is going to do what? He's going to die. Guess what's going to happen to you and I? We're going to die. He died our death. We're gonna, we died his death. There's this, this identity here. And as a member of his body, bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, we're so tightly identified with him. We have this everlasting union. Look at the end of verse 17. That we may be also glorified, what, how? Together. Not apart, not with, not by, not, but together. Now come back to chapter 6. And, and again, Paul is exposing us to, to, to a new way of thinking here in our identity, but he's not digging up new ground, if you will. <laughs> He's plowed the 40 acres. It's ready to be planted now. And he's in there planting these seeds about our identity and understanding who we are. He's already, look at uh, Romans 6 verse 4. 
Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the by the glory of the Father, even so we should also, uh, even we also should walk in the newness of life. Notice, buried with him, not for him, not because of him, but what? With him. We're going through it with him. We're identifying. Linda broke her arm. Emily's broken her arm. They have a what? They have a union in that experience. They have, there's an equality there. There's a likeness there. I'm buried with him. The same way he was buried, I was buried. By, by the way, it's buried with him uh, by baptism into what? Death. That word baptism. Wednesday night, uh, Mark and so forth. We didn't have Wednesday night because my truck broke down again. <laughs> it's coming up on 200,000 miles, so everything's given, you know. It's like, okay. You know, groans and travails. It, it's always unsettling to be going down the freeway at about 80, 85, 90, you know, and going at the speed, and all of a sudden the light comes on and the motor slows down. And you know what lane you're in? The far left lane. And it's like, you know, I got to get all the way over there. So you get over, get on, go back anyway. So uh, it might be time for a, a replacement. I don't know, though. I just love my truck. That's the problem, you know? Anyway, in Mark, we're talking about baptism. There in Mark 1, we're talking about John's baptism. Baptism in Scripture simply means identification. It's the means of identifying, okay? It's never just water. By the way, in chapter 6 here, never let anyone put water in there. It destroys this. This is a dry baptism. This is a spirit baptism. But what does he do? 1 Corinthians 12, 13. He ident- by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. We're joined there. Actually, we're going to look at that here in just a minute. Look at verse 5, 6, 5. For if we have been, what? Planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall, note, planted. It's fascinating. Paul loves uh, the, the farm. He loves the farmer. You take that seed, and you're going to plant that seed. That seed's dead until you do what? Put it in the ground, add a little this, add a little that, add a little rubbing and loving or whatever, you know. And then what happens? From that death, dead seed comes what? Life. Likeness. Planted together in the likeness. When did that happen? 2,000 years ago or a little more at Calvary when he died. But the moment you trusted him as your Savior, justification, what happens? Your identity goes right back to Calvary and it comes, verse 6, knowing this, that our old man is crucified, how? With him. That the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve. With him. We share in his death, burial, and resurrection. And it's inseparable, together, knit, a union, a likeness, that that equality. Look at verse 8. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, what? Dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. Death had dominion over Christ. What death has dominion over you and I, does, don't, do, yes it does, okay, doesn't it? <laughs> All right, it's appointed unto man once to die. So death comes into the equation, and it's got dominion, and, and, 
there we are. So what can we share? What do we share with the Lord? This dominion of death. And that's what the fascinating thing is. So come back, come back over to chapter back to 8:17. So when he says here, we have this joint heir with Christ. We are sharing in together, we're sharing together in common. Fellowship. Fellows in a ship. Everybody in the boat's the same. Okay? And we share in this inheritance, joint heirs. An heir gets an inheritance. But we're also, the wonderful thing is, if so be that we what? Suffer with him. That we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared. See that we have this, this, this mentality here, this thinking, the language, the terminology. I'm one with him. My life's in him. My future is in him. My past is with him. I'm completely identified in all aspects of our, my identity with him. It, it, uh, several studies ago, I made a mention about the issue of that we, we actually take on his DNA. We share that DNA makeup. And that's literally what's going to happen. Come over with me to 1 Corinthians. Uh, actually, go get Philippians 2. Just one or the, the end of Philippians 1, I'm sorry. A verse that we've looked at. This is a glorious truth. And then we'll go to 1 Corinthians 12. So Philippians 2 and 1 Corinthians 12. This is a glorious thing to catch. Now, in Romans 8, Paul is laying in the foundation. In other passages, he will get into the inheritance, especially in Ephesians, much deeper. He gets into the suffering things in Corinthians and, and, and Philippians here much deeper. If you look there at Philippians 1, verse 28, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to bring an evident token of perdition, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but of you, to you of salvation and that of God. Terrified by your adversaries. Did the Lord have adversaries? Yeah, he did. He looks at the disciples and said, hey, the world hate you. When the, just remember, they hated me first, and they hate me more. So just when you think you got it bad, just remember me. He had adversaries, but how did he react to them? That's where Paul's leading us in Romans 8. Is look, you're going to go through some things, and you have this jointness here, this identity, not only in the glory and the inheritance, but that's future, but right now, how in the world do you respond to the suffering? Look at verse 29. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, that's a glorious, this is a wonderful truth. Hey, isn't it wonderful to believe on him and find out all these riches we have in Christ? But also to what? Suffer. Now here it's for his sake. Different realm of suffering here. Romans 8, it's to suffer what? With him. So come back to 1 Corinthians 12. So when we are, we're, we are joint heirs, equally we have this inheritance, but guess what? <laughs> we got to suffer with him first. Now, 
Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 is going to make, he's going to describe something here about the body that's wonderful. Uh, verse 12, as, for as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, notice, so also is who? Christ. The Father sees you as an independent in individual. He sees you with your own personality, your own opinions, your own thought processes, your own ways of thinking about things, yet he sees us where? In Christ. When he views you and I, the, the writers of your scripture, Matthew was a tax collector. He wrote the book of Matthew. He's a Jew also. But he writes from a governmental perspective. So the Lord, the Holy Spirit, doesn't override Matthew's personality. And he causes Matthew to write the way Matthew writes in the description of the Lord as Israel's king. So in Matthew, it's very governmentally. Here's what the king said. See? You take Luke. Who was Luke? He's the doctor, Dr. Luke, the beloved physician. So he, he, and Luke writes from a doctor's perspective. So he describes the Lord in his earthly ministry and stuff as man, as the man. The Holy Spirit didn't come in and say, okay, Luke, you write like a king would write, and Matthew, you write like a doctor would write. He doesn't do that. He uses that when Daniel writes. He uses Daniel in the way Daniel would speak and say, but he doesn't override the volition of man. But yet, where, did, where does God see those? He sees them in Christ. You and I are the same way. We, are the, we got one body, but what do we have? Many members. Verse 13, For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free. Notice the different nationality, the different statuses there. And have been made all, all been made to drink into one Spirit, for the body is not one member but many. If the foot shall say, because I am not the hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And then he goes down and he talks about, here, he uses the body and the hands and all the feet and the eyes and the head and all this different things to describe the various relationships that diversity has in the body. You see, diversity in Scripture is a good thing. Okay, I know in society sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't, but in Scripture here it is. Hey, we can't all be the head. That, by the way, that was the problem at Corinth with the, with the spiritual gifts. They all wanted to be the guy up on the platform speaking in tongues, prophesying. They all wanted to be the guy up getting the attention rather than understanding that even the guys that had the gifts of healing and giving and all that other were just as important, if not more important, than the other ones. So they exalted tongues, and Paul smacks them and says, don't do that. <laughs> okay, and here's why. Now, drop down to verse 25. That there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. Do you know what my hand needs? 
It needs my foot to move right, doesn't it? What does my head need? The rest of it to work when I... Have you ever done that? You know, the older you get, I'm sorry, I, I'm still a young man, I know, but, you know, you, you, you're going to want to move, you say, you know, i got to go over there, and the leg says, yeah, in just a second. <laughs> just a minute on that one, you know? And, you, it, it just, and, you know, maybe you don't have that. Young, the young people don't have that yet. It's coming if the Lord tarries. But see, the thing is, is what does the, what does the, they all need to be doing what? Taking care of each other. Work in unison. Now watch verse 26. And whether one member suffer, all members suffer with it. For one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now look at that. Paul's looking at the Corinthians. Who in the world do you think you are? You are not any more important than the poor saints in Macedonia. You're just as critical, just as valuable as they are. You're not working independent. You're not an independent individual over here, even though, I mean, you are, and that the hand is this, and the foot is that. Can't see it. Lay can see it. Okay? But the thing is, is you're still part of what? The body. And you have this interaction here. You notice in verse 26, all the members suffer, next two words, with it. They rejoice with it. We participate together in whether it's honor and rejoicing or whether it's suffering. See? Verse 27. Now we ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. That's a wonderful verse. You know who you are not? You are not Israel. You're not the little flock. You're not the believing remnant. You're not the nation of Israel. Who are you? You're the body of Christ. That's who you are. And members in particular. Again, members in particular. That relationship we have in Christ. So the problem here isn't with the Father's side as he looks at us. It's usually where? On our side. He says the simplicity that's in Christ. And we say, nope, it can't be that simple. It's got to be a little more complex. You see, it's on our side where we need to adjust our thinking. We need to adjust our perspective on the issues here of our identity. That's what we're talking about in Romans 8. But also on, this, on the issue of our inheritance and on this issue of our suffering with him. We need to adjust. And again, it gets back to you're going to suffer how do you think about it? How do you handle it? And we need to adjust our thinking to what the truth is telling us. And let the truth be, come over to, back over there to Philippians 2. Let the truth be what's, what's going to impact the way we respond and the way we relate and react to it, to the suffering issue. So back there in Romans 8, we are joint heirs. We have an equal inheritance. We just can't spend it yet. <laughs> you know? Because we're not there yet. We're having to do what? We're having to wait. You know, you, you know the scenario. Someone sets up a trust fund and the kid can't have it until they're what? 
21 usually, right? Okay. Well, mom and dad, whether they're gone or here, what can't the kid, the kid knows he has it, just can't touch this. Just can't get there yet. That future day is coming. Look at Philippians 2. We know verse 5 to 8 there. By the way, look at verse 6. Who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be what? Equal with God. There's another equality. What did the Lord think he was? He thought he was equal with God. Why? Because he was. He's God-man. We're equal as well. Where? In him, in that issue of inheritance. But look at verse 9. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him, that's Christ, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's, he, what has the Father done? He's exalted him, hasn't he? But when does verse 10 and 11 happen? Not right now. Things in the earth, nobody in the earth bowing down to Jesus. That's a future event still to come. That's something future. We have the same equality with Christ today, and we're going to have the same equality out there in the future. Come over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 just want you to see this issue about this equality here for a minute because as we move here and as we kind of go, that's what Paul's doing with us in Romans 8. You have this equality with Christ in your identity, in the future glory, the, joint, the inheritance, but you're also going to have this equality with him now as you suffer, and that's the, that's the design and the intent to, correct, to adjust your thinking. 2 Thessalonians 1, look at verse 10. When he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed, notice, in that day. We're equal with the Lord in the area and in, in the issue of inheritance, glorification. We're gonna he's gonna be glorified where? In his saints, there we are. Again, in that day, a future day. But notice he says he's going to be, and to be, what? Admired in all them that believe. Admire. Boy, what a word. You know, <laughs> a couple months ago for my birthday, the kids rented me a Corvette. And you know what you did? I did. You don't. I did. I what? I admired the car. I was like, wow. I got in it. Had Linda take my picture. Prove I had was in it. <laughs> Prove I drove it. You know, you take a picture of the of the uh, odometer before and after. Prove you you know moved it. But what do you do? You admire it. A real show of the manifestation here of who he is as God the Son. Paul calls him the Lord of Lord, King of Kings, the only potentate, capital P. 
He's worthy of it all. He's going to be admired. And he's doing it all in you and I, in the saints. So when you come back here to Romans 8, come back to Romans 8. What the Father is going to do here is he says, listen, and he's doing this through the Spirit. We have the Spirit of Adoption, capital S, the Spirit bearing witness with our spirit. We've got the guarantee. We know it's coming. We've got the promise of the earnest inheritance of the promise of the purchase of the the redemption of the body. We understand that's coming. By the way, how do we understand that? Because the verses tell us that. The Word of God teaches that. And he says, listen, you have an equal share in that inheritance out there. But you know what? You're not there yet. And in the meantime, and while you're sitting around, verse 18, guess what's going to happen? For I reckon that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. There's a present suffering. And it's amazing here that Paul pulls us back. Think about this, verse 17. We're a joint heir. We're heirs. We're up in the heavens, aren't we? If so be that we suffer with him, we shall also be glorified. He, Paul just says, okay, you see that? Now come back to reality. <laughs> you see that? Yes, you have it. Yes, you're a part of it. Yes, that's yours in a future event. But you need to come back to reality. And the reality of it is, is that God is not mad at you. That's chapter 5. You have peace with God. He's not upset with you. And what happens is, is he's not going to protect you. Next hour, we'll see a passage in Deuteronomy where, because we're going to be talking about work and the, and the J-O-B uh, in the next section there in, uh, in Ephesians. And uh, he, he's, he looks at Israel and he says, Israel... You saw what I did to you in the wilderness, did for you in the wilderness, those supernatural, miraculous events. He provided manna. Who provided the manna? He did. They didn't go out and work and cook, and it's, it's angels' food. It's corn out of the cornfield and so forth. Psalm says, but you see how I did all that? You're going to go into that promised land, and you know what you're going to have to do now? You're going to have to work because I ain't doing that. You see, miracles belong to wandering around the wilderness where a bunch of children are. That's what God's teaching Israel. You're not always going to have... In the wilderness, he brought the enemies to them, and then he defeated the enemies. Moses' arms up, goes down, up and down, right? And he showed them that he's Jehovah, Nisi, Jehovah, Rafaki, Jehovah, all those Jehovah, he demonstrated that. And he said, I was doing that, so when you go over here, and I'm not doing that with you. So guess what? Paul's saying here, get back to reality. You know what reality is? Life stinks sometimes. The reality is, is it's appointed unto man once to die. The reality of it is, is you're going to suffer, you're going to hurt, you're going to groan. I should say you're potentially going to hurt and groan and suffer. Okay? That's the reality. Paul takes us out of the heavenly places, sitting up there enjoying the inheritance and the redemption of our body, and he says, come back to reality. You know what you're going to? You're going to have to suffer with him. We're going to experience the same things he experienced. 
And we have to learn to respond and to react the same way he did to those experiences, to those hurts. And that's what Paul now is going to spend the rest of 18 teaching, uh, chapter 8, teaching us and educating us and looking at this so that we have the proper thinking process when it comes to the realm of suffering. But notice something. Go, come over with me to Hebrews and Hebrews chapter 5. And just notice how the writer of Hebrews describes the Lord in this. Okay? Because when you think about suffering with him, and Paul is saying, hey, we're going to have to suffer and react and to be the same way he is, has. Okay, well, what did he do? Well, look at Hebrews 5, look at verse 5. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest. But he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. Now he's describing the Lord Jesus Christ as being the, high, the, the perfect high priest for the nation of Israel. Okay? But notice in that verse, Thou art my... But he, so, so also Christ glorified not himself. He didn't promote himself to be made the high priest. But the Father did. But he that said unto him, Thou art my beloved son, my son, today have I begotten thee. When did the Father say that to him? Resurrection. You go back through and you go back into Acts and you study out the, these, these. You know what? When, when he was going to Calvary and he's there and he's like, there's my beloved son. He's the one that's going to do. The father declared him. You're in Hebrews. Look back at Ephesians. Hold on to Hebrews. Look back here at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. By the way, that quote there in Hebrews, Acts chapter 2, that's what Peter is driving at, is that when he said, he's my beloved son, what he was doing there was he was raising him up, and that's when David said, my Lord said to your Lord, sit thou in my right hand until I make thy... It was all about resurrection. Uh, Ephesians 1, look if you will here at verse 19. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power. The his and the his power here is talking about the Father. How do you know that? Verse 3. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us. He's talking about the Father. The Father. Verse 17, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of, God, of glory, may give unto you. What did he give us? His exceeding power, his exceeding mighty power. Verse 20, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. What did he declare him to be? For Israel, he declared him to be that perfect high priest that perfect king, that perfect prophet. He declared him to be that. Matthew over there, 
Matthew uh, 10, 11, 12. Uh, actually, I think it's in chapter 12 there. And he says he's a greater than prophet. He's a greater than the priest. He's a greater than Solomon. He's a greater than Jonah. He's a greater than David. Why? Because that's who he is. But when did the Father declare that? When he raised him from the dead. Now, for you and I, verse 20, and, see, here we go, set him at his own right hand in heavenly places far above all, verse 22, and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things. Now he's what? Our head. See, Calvary, the resurrection accomplished for the two groups. For Israel, the per- go back to Hebrews 5, the perfect priest, king, and prophet, and for you and I, our head. Now, we don't know about you and I until Paul shows up, revelation given to the apostle Paul. What Hebrews 5 is doing is reaching back. You're in Hebrews. Come back to chapter 1. Chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 1, God, who at sundry times and in divers' manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. And interesting, the Father is the one that wrote Hebrews. Okay, everybody, who wrote Hebrews? God the Father did. And he spoke to us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Hey, there we go. He's what? He's the heir of what? All things. Guess what? We're a joint heir in that inheritance, but in our heavenly place part of it, the heavenly part. Who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power. Isn't that interesting? Sounds a lot sim- very similar to Ephesians 1, what he's doing, isn't it? When... He had by himself, notice that, all, Christ alone, didn't have help, didn't need help, doesn't need your help, doesn't need Israel's help. He purged the sins, how? By himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels as he hath by an inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. That's exactly what Paul's telling you and I, Just he's telling you and I as members of the body of Christ, and Hebrews is talking about that little flock in Israel. He's like, look, guys, how, by the way, how did he, when did he obtain a better name? When he was resurrected and sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. He didn't do it down here on the earth. He's resurrected. Now, come back to Hebrews 5. <laughs> So when did the Father declare him to be my beloved Son? Resurrection. Okay? By the way, the earlier quotes where he does that in his baptism, he says, uh, Yeah, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. I had to get it. (laughs) This is talking to the audience in Matthew 3. Then in Mark 1, when he says it there, he says, Thou art my beloved Son. Now he's talking to the, to the Lord directly. That's an identification issue. Now, Hebrews 5. Get back on track here. Look at verse 7. Well, verse 6. As he has said also in another place, 
thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's going to be explained in chapter 7. He's quoting Psalms 110. Verse 7, watch this. Who in the days of his, what? Flesh. So what days would that be? Well, when he was born, and he, his earthly ministry, the gospel accounts. The days of his flesh. Now watch. When he offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from what? Death. And was heard in that he, what? Feared. Think about the Lord that way. He was a man of sorrow, was he not? He, sub, he in the days of his flesh, what, what does he suffer here? He suffers fear of death, doesn't he? He goes through this fear of dying. He offers up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears. Well, what did the tears end up being in the garden? Teardrops of blood and so forth. And we know that. We go back and we study that out. But my point is, is in, when his earthly ministry, when the days of his flesh, what happened here? <laughs> what was he going through? He was suffering. He feared death. Why? Because he's subject to die, isn't he? He's subject to death. By the way, if you look at verse 8, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. He was tempted in all points common to who? To man. Everybody goes, well, he didn't have the internet. Yeah, but he was tempted in the area of the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, the three areas man is tempted in, period. You take all of it. And you put it right in. The pride of life, the knowledge, the know, the grow, the philosophy, the, 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 the world viewpoint. We all get trapped in that. Bring up the word politics, you know. Some, I read something about that word politics means uh, a, uh, I just had it. Anyway, it wasn't a good thing. It was a group of monkeys or something like that. I couldn't tell you. I can't remember it now. I just had it. Anyway, so what do we do? We strive for knowledge. He sits there. He goes into that temple at the age of 12, and he wows the scholars with his what? Knowledge. You go and you look in Luke, and the temptation of Christ, and those four, and where Satan comes in, and you know where he tempts Christ? In those three areas, pride of life, uh, Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life, same areas that you are tempted in. He went through, and you know what he said? As it is written, as it is written, as it is written. Where did he go back to? Word of God. What's the son going to do? He's going to learn obedience. Why? He doesn't know what it's like to die. But you know what he did in his humanity? He learned. He came to that end, able to save him from death. What's he doing? Father, if there's a way to get this out of here, <laughs> please. But not my will, but thy will be done. <laughs> that prayer of petition. We've, we've looked at it. Well, we looked at the Psalms. You remember we looked back there at Psalms 69 and Psalms 82, 83. Psalms, 
and we did that, and I was showing you what did he's Psalms 22. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? No longer Father, but God. And he says, I'm a worm. I'm not a man. I'm a worm. You know, he feared that. He knew it was coming. He knew Psalms 22. He knew it was talking about him. That's what he's going to say in chapter 10 of a, uh, you've made a body for me there. Though I come in the volume of the book, uh, I'm sorry, uh, but a body hast thou prepared for me to go be the side. What did Christ do? He feared death, did he not? But what did he what got him through it? Trusting the word of the Father. What did the Father say? You go die and I'll resurrect you. You're immortal, go die, and I will give you immortality. And you know what the Son said? I'm going to trust the will and the word of my Father, and I'm going to trust him to do what he says he can do, and off you go. I don't know if you've ever thought about the Godhead um, now that Christ is resurrected, but Jesus Christ is the Godhead bodily, Colossians 2. God the Father is, does not have a body like the Son has a body. The Spirit doesn't have a body. The Son has the only human body that's immortal at the moment. He's the firstborn of what? Many brethren. Do you know that, I love that, of many brethren. He's your brother. Many brethren. The Lord is your brother. It's amazing when you kind of break some of this down. Come over, back over, uh, come over to Hebrews 2. Notice it here. So the Lord feared death. Strong crying, strong tears. Prayers and supplications. Look at chapter 2. Look at verse 12. We're just jumping in. Verse 9, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. Why was he made lower than the angels? Why did he take on the form of a man? By the way, which means what? We're lower than angels, right? Why did he do that? For the suffering of death. Crowned, him, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for... Isn't that interesting? Not the physical death, that spiritual death, the second death, Revelation calls it. That's what he tasted for every man. Verse 12, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. Think about that. That's a quote out of Psalms 22. It's 22, verse 22. And in Psalms 22, the first 21 verses are about Calvary and everything that's going through the Lord's mind, everything that's happening. And then 22 to the end of the passage is all about glory and the kingdom and him being glorified as the king. And you know what he says? I'm going to declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church. Will I sing praise unto thee? I will sing praise. I will declare. You know what he's saying there? I'm going to be there. So you know what I know about? Resurrection. That's what, my, that's what the Father's going to do to me. He's going to resurrect me. Verse 13. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I will, I and the children which God hath given 
me. I'm going to put my trust where? In him. Now think about this. In Psalms 22, it's the son talking to the father. Here, it's the father talking to the son. The father says, I trust the son to do what he's going to do. And you know what the son says? I trust the father to do what he says he's going to do. See that? Verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he all himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who, now watch, through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to what? Bondage. What does Paul say in Romans 8? We're not, we're not, we don't have the spirit of bondage again to fear. That fear motivation produced by the law. What did the law produce these guys? If you don't perform, I'm going to kill you. Remember, you come up here on this mountain, you break the border. I ain't, there's no judicial thing except swift justice and that's you're dead. And if your donkey comes up here, I'm going to kill him. Your chicken, I'm going to kill it. You stay away. You can only approach me now the way that I'm going to set up, which he sets up Moses and Aaron, the tabernacle, the temple, and all of that. What's going on here? I'm going to put my trust in the Father, and the Father says, I'm going to put my trust in him. And you know what he went and tasted? He went and tasted death for every man. And you know what he did? He delivered everybody from the fear of dying. Of death. And that's what Paul in Romans 8 is going to get to. Come back to Romans 8. Is he's going to come along and he's going to begin to work down through here and he's going to look at us and he's going to say, Listen, you don't have to fear death. You don't have to worry about dying because Christ has already. And your joint, ident- your joint heir, your, that common identity that we, that knit, that union, that equality, that likeness that we have with him, he's already taking care of that for you and I. That's why he's going to do in chapter 8, if you look down there at verse 31. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Verse 33, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? You see, by the way, who's the accuser of the brethren? The adversary is. He doesn't even have a leg to stand on. Why? Because of who you are in Christ. That's why verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The conclusion there in verse 39 nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says, listen, guys, you're going to suffer with him. He, he took care of death for you. 1 Corinthians 15. Death, where's your sting? Grave, where's your, where's your hole? It's all been dealt with. The last enemy, death, no more. So guess what you shouldn't worry about? 
Don't worry about dying. Now, it's not talking about not have a quality of life, okay? <laughs> but what are you worried about? Absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It's in it. Boom, boom, boom. Don't worry about dying. That would help with some end-of-life decisions, <laughs> you know? Hey, you don't, why? Because Christ has already taken care of it. Paul here, Romans 8, verse 17, And if children, then heirs and heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. We're going to suffer with him. We, have to go th- we will go through the same things that he did. We have our own present day experience in the realm of our physical bodies. But we also have hope. And we also have the Word of God that will come along and to cause us and have an impact in us and enable us to respond the same way He did. And ultimately what He did was He trusted the Word of His Father. Second, our First Thessalonians 2 there, verse 13, the Word of God works effectually in them that believe. You and I are in the same boat. Now we'll pick up in verse 18 next time, maybe take a few more chunks than spending three weeks in one verse, but this is critical here. We see this joint error. We got this inheritance coming, glory, glory, glory. And he said, but you ain't there yet. And until then, you got to go through this. And just as he went through, you're going to go through. And just as he had a positive outcome, guess what you can have? Same thing. Okay? And you're going to get there by trusting the Word of God. All right? Okay. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the morning, Lord. We thank you for your Word and for the instruction here and the insight. We thank you for who we are in your Son. Give you the praise and the glory and the honor in that. In your name we pray. Amen. All right.